Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Human Stories of Resilience. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today and paying my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. Hey Susie. Hey Steve. We have our guest. He's someone I know who was a priest and then he wasn't. Hang on, isn't that kind of you? Are we interviewing you? <laughs> it does sound a bit like my story, doesn't it? And that was sort of how I first got to know this guy, because it is, I guess, something that we have in common. He went a lot further than me, as as we shall hear. I was immediately drawn to Andrew as, a, as an interviewee when we talked to Father Bob a couple of weeks ago. Just this whole notion of the place of God and of religious belief in the third decade of the 21st century. Well, let's meet him. And I note that you're interested in God and the place of religious belief. And I'm just intrigued that now I'm going to know two ex-priests or (laughs) ex-seminary lads. So Collect the (laughs) says. More than I thought, definitely. Apologies, by the way, in advance for the poor quality of the recording of Paul's voice, technical difficulties and all that. Sorry. Andrew, welcome to the Bloom Podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, you. Good to be with you today. Great to meet you. Andrew, one of the big buzzwords over the past year or so has been about pivot, but I think you probably hold the record, <laughs> the greatest kind of a pivot in your life. Tell us your story. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to have a, a great record for pivoting because I think there's a lot of pivoting going on at the moment. People are pivoting left, right and centre to try to keep their head above water. But um, So I'm a South Australian. Don't hold that against me. I'm also an Adelaide Crow supporter, which gives me even in more trouble. My family's background is from country South Australia, typical Irish Catholic background. But I was educated in Adelaide at a boys' school, at Christian Brothers Boys' School. My sort of journey into becoming a Catholic priest really started in high school. I ended up entering the seminary pretty much straight from school. And people often ask me, well, you were so young. How did you know that's what you wanted to do, making such a huge life decision at such a, a young age? I met a couple of priests who really influenced me during my latter years of high school. Um, one in particular that spent quite a lot of time in India, and I ended up going over there as well for a while, in Calcutta, working with Mother Teresa, with the missionaries of charity. He was just a great guy, and he was a very relaxed, sort of chilled out sort of fellow. And he had a and very spiritual and and could articulate things beautifully and really clearly in a way that I'd never really heard before. So he had a huge influence on me as a younger man. And of course, my family. I'm not from one of those Catholic families that, you know, necessarily was crazy about church. We went to Mass. But there are certain times, certainly times when we didn't go to Mass. My mother was a convert and she also grew up in the in the in the country. So I had a pretty relaxed sort of upbringing, sort of spiritual spirituality. Was the awakening really happened for me through schooling? I think I was just spiritually inquisitive as a, as a teenager, you know, back in the seventies and eighties when I was at, well, seventies really when I was going through high school, and that's what sort of set me on the road really to, to sort of choose a, the priesthood as a as a vocation or as a as a life for myself. And pretty much went to the seminary, you know, before I was even eighteen. And then it's, what, six years at the seminary? Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, it was seven years. So seven years of study in the seminary. And then I was ordained in Adelaide. Ended up spending a little bit of time, I, I, as I said, in, in India. And then sort of returned to parish work in South Australia. The first, uh, Firstly in the northern suburbs of Adelaide and then 
right down in the opposite side of the city in the south. Both the parishes that I was sent to as a young priest were pretty demanding. They were low socioeconomic areas, lots of social problems and issues, you know, very large parishes with the number of schools, both high school and primary school, and a lot of things going on. It was a good time, you know, to be involved. It was, it was before, you know, the scandals that have in very, in very many parts of the world torn the church apart, you know, around the sexual abuse of children you know, those, those horrific uh, crimes that we're all well aware of now. So it was before that all emerged. But it was certainly happening gurgling under the surface, as I found out later. But we weren't having to deal with it at the time as a priest. And you're not a priest now. What happened? I didn't leave because I fell in love. You know, a lot of um, a lot of my colleagues and friends who are still good friends who have also you know moved away from ministry. You know, they moved, they left, they met someone, they they fell in love, they embarked on a marriage. That didn't really happen to me. I sort of left a number of years after I was ordained. I think I think in many ways I, I matured and I just found myself in a place where uh, I found it really challenging, sort of the day-to-day work. I really enjoyed the pastoral side of the work. I really enjoyed the people and working closely with them. I think I found some of the church structures you know, challenging at times I think as, as I matured. The scandals that uh, emer- were starting to emerge, we've seen, as I said before, sort of right around the world. I thought in many ways in those early days, you know, we re- really were protecting the wrong people and that we weren't standing enough, up enough for the victims. And certainly as a younger man, that sort of made me question how the church is operating. Yeah, and there are a number of things that just happened to me uh, personally that you would call them stumbling stones. In the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah talks about, you know, the stumbling stone. You know, you, you imagine that you're walking along a, a cobbled street and there's a, a little stone that's sticking up. You know how you sometimes come across these things and you trip on it and you fall. The prophet says that God is that stumbling stone, is that that thing that trips you up, that makes you question your existence and makes you look for deeper meanings. And I think that really happened to me. And it happened to me on a couple of occasions when I was a priest. So one in particular, which, which is really stands out as very vivid, which is probably the first time that I really started seriously thinking whether you know, I was indeed being called to this life, you know, for the rest of my life. I'd done a wedding of a couple, a lovely couple, a woman who taught at one of our schools, our primary schools. A couple of years after they were married, they fell pregnant with their first child. And she carried the child right to term. But I got a call at the presbytery at the church house at about midnight one night to say that um, you know, a terrible thing had happened and she, the, the baby had died in utero and she was going into labour to deliver a deceased child and they wanted me there straight away. Um, they wanted me to come in and sit with sit with them, and then when the baby was born, they wanted me to sit with them and, and just offer some prayer and some comfort and, and do whatever I could from a spiritual point of view. Yeah, I, and that, that really knocked me around, and I remember driving home. It would have been about 3 or 4 in the morning by that time, and the, the, the church house was empty. The priest that I was sharing the house with was away for some reason. So I just remember coming home to an empty house and just thinking, my God, you know, after what I've just been through, you know, it's, it's just and no one really to talk, talk talk about it with, no one to really share it with, and just to, I guess, to be able to debrief it. And I remember at that moment feeling pretty intensely alone. And there's a difference between being lonely and being alone. You know, we all go through lonely times. But that sense of absolute aloneness was really something that hit me hard that night. And it really started me thinking. And I, as I look back now, I think that was probably the stumbling stone. It was probably the moment uh, 
when I really started calling into question the direction that I was heading in. Was it a challenge to your faith as well, Andrew? It's known as the problem of evil, the fact that an omniscient God could evidently have stopped that but did not. I've never thought of it that way because people often say, well, how could God allow horrible things to happen? I've always, I've never really thought that because I think there's a natural order and there's, no, I think uh, God is wise enough to allow the universe to unfold as it should. I'm not someone who thinks that God just absolutely controls every event that happens to us or happens within the world, that God may have a plan or an overarching vision or where God sees everything unfolding eventually, but the day-to-day issues and problems and crises that we all face and the world faces, pretty much a lot of them are our doing and a lot of them are things that we've got to solve. So I'm not a sort of a, a you know, a, what someone who just puts it all in the hands of God and says, you know, God is in charge of everything, just hand everything over to him or her. You know, I, I, that's just not the way, just not where my spirituality is at. Do you have a vivid memory of the point at which you decided or announced or told the powers that be that you were going to leave? Well, there comes that moment, doesn't it, where you've got to sort of stand up and sort of make an appointment with the Archbishop and talk things through. I don't know whether it still happens now, but you are able to have a year's leave, and that's what I did. So I decided and was encouraged to take a year's leave of absence. And uh, in that year, I travelled to Western Australia and I, I lived out in the in the country and I picked cauliflowers for, uh, <laughs> all through the winter down in the southwest of Western Australia. My God, that was cold. So I picked cauliflowers and they umpired AFL football and I sort of participated in the local parish community. Every now and again, I still officiated and said mass, but most of the time I just uh, sat with, in the pews with other people and sort of just carried on life and really took it. I did a long retreat uh, at a retreat house in the southwest of Western Australia. So I, I took some, tried to take some time to really think things through, and the year's leave was really a good idea to give me that space to work things through on my own mind. After the year I came back, I actually came back to the ministry for probably another year or so, and then eventually I, I sort of made the permanent move from there. But in many respects, you know, I, I still sort of think of myself as a priest. Andrew, were there practical challenges with re-entry to a world you left as a, a 17-year-old? I mean, you did, how did you get a job? Did you have to study? or? I was very lucky that I, when I started the seminary, it was the first year that seminarians were encouraged to study at university as well as in the seminary. So I ended up with a double degree. Seminary, pretty highly educated, and that was a great gift. I'll never really fully be able to repay. So, I, you know, the workplace, I found a job relatively quickly. I'll tell you what that, what that was in, that was in a minute. I mean, there was huge challenges. I had no money. You know, you didn't earn any money, really, as a priest. I, I didn't have any money. You know, my parents were very supportive, which was great. So I stayed with them for a while. And, and, of course, you know, when you start, you think about or starting to meet, you know, getting on the dating scene and starting to meet people, what, what I knew about women, you could fit into a thimble. So, you know, that was a bit daunting. It's sort of exciting, nevertheless. Yeah, there were lots of things to navigate, Susie, sort of as coming out, life in the real world. But I wasn't like I was enclosed. I was living in the world. I was working in a parish. I was seeing I was seeing some pretty interesting things that were happening in people's lives anyway. But there were some just some of the practical things. You know, where am I going to live? How am I going to earn, earn some money? How am I going to? survive in the world from a practical perspective. Are you still a believer? Um, that's a good question. I would describe myself as yes. My, I'm certainly not a regular sort of Sunday mass goer or church goer. 
I've, I've had a very strong relationship over the years with St Vincent de Paul Society because I've really seen that they really are very practical in the way they minister and the way they support people who are right on the edge. Uh, so I've been very involved with them over the years. Not so much right now, but I certainly have been very involved with them. Many, I've lived all over Australia now with work, so I've pretty well been involved with Vinnie's everywhere I've lived. Do you pray? Yeah, I certainly meditate. I mean, Helen and I do a meditation every morning. It's the first thing we do, actually, before we get up and do some exercise. So, you know, 5 a.m., it's meditation time. On that, I think my prayer life has deepened beyond just saying prayers to seeing it more holistically. And so I'm, I've been quite attracted to some of the Buddhist um, approaches to spirituality and some of the contemplative approaches to spirituality. Because in many ways, you know, Buddhism and, and contemplative Christianity are very alike, both stressing the interior life and the value of silence you know, mindfulness, which is that word a lot that's thrown around a bit now. Not that a lot of people really know what it means. And what line of work have you found yourself in, Andrew? I'm in the same line of work that I was in when I left the priesthood. So after I left the priesthood, I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And I'd actually, while I was a priest, it's sort of on my Monday off, I went and did my fitness leader course because I've always really been interested in fitness and health and training. My father was a great athlete and a wonderful footballer, could do virtually any sport that he turned his hand to. So I grew up with a really love of sport and physical activity. So I went off and did my physical fitness group just as a bit of fun, really. So I ended up, when I left the priest, I ended up teaching aerobic classes, which my friends thought was absolutely hilarious. His <laughs> father hopes, one minute he's a priest, you know, now he's running around in lycra, you know, teaching step rebot classes and aerobic group fitness. It was hilarious, isn't it? I mean, it put food on the table for a, a while, but it wasn't a, a career. It was a bit of fun. So I, um, I got involved in fitness, and then um, when I was thinking, what am I really going to do? While I was a priest, of course, I was very involved with, with funerals. You know, funerals were a big part of my life. So I got to know quite a few funeral directors, you know, and I thought they were pretty quirky and they were pretty good guys and girls, and they were down to earth, and they cared about their families, and they really were very ministerial in the way they did care for their the families and the people in their care. So I ended up getting a job in funeral service in Adelaide and quite quickly sort of moved through the ranks and ended up sort of being involved in management at quite senior levels for the for, for the organisation when it was acquired by a, a large funeral group, a large ASX group now called, in, now called InvoCare, which operates funeral services all over Australia, New Zealand, Singapore. So I had sort of senior executive roles in that for a while. And now I look after our learning and development function in Australia and New Zealand. So I'm very much involved with education, community education as well, but educating our staff and supporting our staff to be the best they can be, to look after families, to, to be aware of how grief impacts people and how trauma impacts people and how to communicate effectively with, with our families and our clients and support them in the best way we can. So my, my role is, I see my job very pastoral, very ministerial, and that's what attracted to me all those years ago, and that's why I'm still doing it. So you're a kind of plainclothes priest. Friends said that to me who were sort of, you know, at my ordination, and some of whom in the seminary I studied with who ended up, so I ended up, you know, officiating their marriages, baptising their children, said, oh, Hose, you're still, you're still really a priest, you're just doing it in a different way. You, you, you touch people in certain ways. Now you... Yeah, now you're touching people's lives in a whole new set of ways. I really wanted a career that had, had, had meaning and, had, and, and delivered a sense of meaning 
to my life. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, Andrew, I think you've kind of, um, you've sort of thwarted really, because I was going to ask what it would be like to have the, the meaning or the, the narrative of your life change so much. But in a way, what you've found is quite the same, but it's, it, you've continued to find that a meaningful work in your life. It's been a very nice transition. Meaning is a very important thing to grasp and to have in your life. You know, a lot of us, we talk a lot about happiness and finding happiness. You're much better you know, hunting for meaning. Meaning lasts longer. Happiness is a bit fickle, comes and goes at times, as we all know. But, you know, meaning, nothing, nothing can rob you rob that and take that from you if you've got a, that sense of meaning and purpose. So for me, it's been, um, it has delivered that and I've really enjoyed it. I've really, I've really have enjoyed my work and it's been, I've been very blessed of being able to do it. So, you know, for as long as I have, and I've had so many different roles within it and different challenges and worked with so many different organisations and people within it. So that's been, it's been really great. So the meaning of life is meaning. That's right. Seeking meaning over happiness is certainly going to get you further. I've just got to be happy. I'm just going to be happy. I'm just going to find happiness. It's too fickle. It's too fleeting. It comes and goes. If you can find meaning and, and purpose, then you know, you're, you're set for life. I think you may have very neatly summed up the pretty well the philosophy of our little podcast there, Andrew. Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, it was quite my accident, I assure you. Andrew, do you feel like there's anything special about your life journey? To most of us, well, certainly to me, in, out of the three of us, being a, becoming a priest is a very foreign idea and that feels special. But there are lots and lots of people who have a philosophy into something at the age of, of 17, 18, that then looking back they think, oh, that wasn't for me, why, you know, Whatever. I mean, lots of people who who study things at university or or make an early marriage or or make these big life decisions at that age. When you think about it, is it sort of in that category, or does the the whole vocation thing make it a, a special thing? People often say, "Oh, celibacy. How can you ever choose that? How can you ever live that productively?" Well, the fact is that you can be a very selfish person and be celibate because effectively you're only really having to worry much about yourself. You know, if you you come home at the end of a busy day and you don't want to communicate with anybody else, you don't have to. But if you're married and you're engaged in a family, you can't do that. You have to you have to engage with your partner and your children. You have to be open to them and be supportive of their needs and be and meet, and meet them in the middle and give of yourself, even when necessarily you feel like you can't. Every parent will tell you that. I, I think some of the real heroes in the world are not necessarily you know, the, the people like me that have entered ministry, but people that have who make a life, you know, to give to their partner and their children in ways that are very profound and beautiful. I'm not a, a parent. I never had children. And um, you know, my, my, my partner, Helen, my wife, Helen, is a, a beautiful daughter, a, a mature age daughter, adult daughter in her late 20s. And she's very much like the daughter I never had, which is wonderful, really. It's been a great gift to me to have that in my life now. But, you know, so I don't have children of my own, so I can't, I can't comment about how tough it is to raise them. But I have enough friends and, you know, family and my sister's children, I can see the challenges that they have and they have had over, the, over their lives, and I think they're the heroes. And what happens when we die? I don't really know. I certainly know one thing, to have, you know, if there, if there is a heaven, it's certainly not a place. So it's certainly not a temporal place whether we're reunited with the people that we've loved over the years. You know, I'm really not sure, Steve. You know, I, 
I remember teaching a course when I was a priest on eternal life, and I still think we were struggling to find it as to how, how it might turn out. One day we'll find out. One way or the other, that's right. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been fascinating to hear your extraordinary story. Really interesting. What a life. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much. What a lovely man. I think so. I'm really intrigued that he's gone into funerals and you've gone into counselling, which are both elements of priestness. What do you deduce from that? It says to me that you weren't that wrong when you thought about. I mean, I, I think you would make you would make a, a wonderful priest. I don't know Andrew as well. Um, I'm sure he was a a good priest up until the point where he lost his vocation. <laughs> but I can imagine when I think of what a priest is and does, I would think Steve that you would be a, a very good priest in the, because it's the same skills as a as a counselor, right? It's being able to listen and be empathetic and and guide people, isn't isn't it? I guess so, yeah. I've known some wonderful men who are priests. I haven't known any, well, the Catholic Church doesn't have female priests yet. My closest experience with a Catholic priest is probably the hot priest from Fleabag, <laughs> who is very empathetic and thoughtful and, and all of those things. I remember when my dad was close to the end in hospital, and we went and found our priest who was coming to visit him. And we had a quiet word with our priest because after my mom had died, my dad had a new lady friend and it was troubling my dad because he wasn't married to her. And we tried to word up this priest, basically not, not, to, not to give it, give the relationship his blessing or anything, but to say to my dad that... My dad thought he was doing the right thing. If his conscience was clear, then we could be pretty sure that the good Lord would look down kindly on him in a forgiving way. You know, something like that. No chance. Nothing. He kind of blanked us, the <laughs> priest. It was almost as if he didn't, he couldn't take on board this job. And I remember after my, after my dad's funeral that I spoke to our next door neighbor who knew him. She was a teacher at the local school. And she too had had unpleasant experiences with this priest, with his lack of empathy, his lack of sympathy. So are we saying there's as much individual variation in the personality type as in any other job? Yes, but with this difference, you can sack your lawyer, you can sack your accountant, you can sack your bookkeeper, you can sack your cleaner or, you know, anybody. You can't sack your priest, not really. I mean, if you go to church and the priest is a dud, then you're kind of stuck with that dud. It's a very powerful position to be in. It's, you know, they have real influence over people's lives. Hmm. The other reflection I have thinking about that was thinking about it, Andrew as a man who went into the seminary at, I think he said 17, and was within that environment and then working as a priest. And and I noticed he he said he he got a double degree. He must have he must have gone to university. So it's not like he was cloistered. But I forgot to find out how old he was when he did we do we know how old he was when he left the priesthood and, and started I think he'd been a priest for about ten years yeah. or so. So he was probably thirty, but with the mm. in some areas with the life experience of a of an eighteen year old. I mean, so not just things like romantically, but I don't know, maybe the the, the job situation, man, 
managing finances. I don't suppose priests do much of that. All, all the sort of adult type things. I certainly remember when I was when I left the seminary, and I didn't have Andrew's experience. He did. He had a double degree, as he said, and I think it it, it must have been a very smart idea on behalf of the church to have their seminarians go to university as well and get some experience of life from which I think they could only benefit. I didn't have any of that. And I remember turning up to university on my 21st birthday, feeling like an adolescent, you know, just in terms of my experience of the world and my ability to um, to take it, on, take it on board. Yeah, I suppose leaving any cloistered situation like prison or orthodox religion. I just watched Unorthodox on Netflix based on a true story, the woman who leaves her very ultra-orthodox Jewish family and, and environment in New York and has to navigate the real world or the the external world. That's a little rude. I shouldn't say real world. It's just as real. But the the external world, there's got to be a commonality there of people who are within one closed environment for a long time where some elements of it are closed and then, then emerge. The army would be a good example, I think, where everything is literally regimented. You're told what to do, when to get up. You know, you don't get an awful lot of choice in a in a, a lot of things and by compensation or partly as compensation you don't have to do a lot of the things that people in civilian life have to do you know a lot of things housing and pay and all that sort of thing are uh, organized for you or perhaps prince harry yeah <laughs> yeah perhaps prince harry now he's finding out what what happens when you're when you're free to make your own mistakes can we say andrew's been on a journey we're not big on the word journey. Not particularly, but I, it's certainly been on a pivot, that's that's for sure. But as you pointed out, it was a, it's a curious kind of a pivot that sort of takes him back where he came from. Belief is so weird though, isn't it? Because you get, I mean, you get people who are scientists and also quite religious, and you've always said you lost your vocation and you lost your belief in the same hit, right? That was my understanding. Yes, yes. Whereas Andrew has, I think, some vestiges of he, he's still very interested in spiritual thoughts and there's a good slab of religion still in there. It didn't quite feel to me entirely resolved because his focus now is on meaning and on interior interiority. Is that a word? I think that's a word that he... No, no, that's, that's not a word, word, isn't it? It should not be a word. You know, going inside and searching for meaning and the recognition that searching for happiness is unlikely to be successful, but searching for meaning may take you to happiness along the way. What is meaning, by the way, if you want to just give me a bit of an elevator pitch on what <laughs> meaning is? Is this where I say 42? <laughs> Too predictable. Too predictable.